five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hey, space enthusiasts. It's another fun episode this week as I sit down with Alex Fielding, the co-founder and CEO of Privateer. You may have heard about Privateer when it first emerged last year. With very few details about it, but intriguingly having Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak as its president and co-founder. Earlier this year, Privateer came further out of stealth, and we learned that, among other things, they are doing space situational awareness. And they got a sponsorship from Swiss watchmaker Omega. But there is so much more to the story. Listen to the episode to find out. Full disclosure, my venture fund E2MC is an investor in Privateer. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. And we'll also put that link in the episode notes. And lastly, you can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Welcome back, everybody. It's another episode of the Space Business Podcast. Happy to be here today with my friend. Alex Feeling from Privateer. Welcome, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's, it's, it's a pleasure. And for full disclosure, um, the venture fund I founded, E2MC Ventures, is an investor in Privateer, actually out of two of our funds, I'm very happy to say. But speaking of Privateer, Alex, why don't you actually give us the elevator pitch, let's say, on, on Privateer? Well, Privateer got started really focused on the problem of space safety, sustainability, and and really focused on how do people operate safely and sustainably in space. Uh, now that we've built this incredible highway system to the stars, which has really radically reduced the launch costs, I, mean, I can put almost anything in space for almost no money. It costs me less money to actually pay for payload than it does to pay for my attorneys uh, to put something in space now. This has created an environment where we now have a very productive um payload path, but we don't have any of the infrastructure required for these things that are going on orbit to actually effectively operate in orbit. So Privateer is being focused on uh, that particular set of challenges with the lens of space environmental sustainability, safety, best practices. And we're doing that through our software Wayfinder, which is doing space tracking and space situational awareness and domain awareness. And some of our other software like uh, RELSEC, which is a conjunction streaming service, which helps people in space not only not crash into each other, but know what to do when they're like, likely to do that. And we've married that with on-orbit infrastructure. So our own satellites focused on providing these capabilities to 
commercial companies and governments alike and their developers in a way that you could do the types of things you want to do in space without having to own spacecraft, without having to own your own satellites or operate them. Uh, you could just use ours on a consumption basis, you know, as needed to build your next generation awesome space applications, which we're pretty excited about. And we call those satellites Superpono, which uh, we're headquartered in Hawaii. So Pono is kind of the closest I can say is it's like Hawaiian karma. It's like doing okay. the right thing. And, uh, yeah, so it's kind of a nod to our adopted home. Okay, so satellites trying to help do the right thing in, in, in space, right. so to say. And, and how did you, this isn't your career background sort of until now, right? How, how did you enter the space community? How did you get sucked down the space hole as we all did? Well, I started my career in space. So 20, 25 years ago, the first thing I ever really worked on was inter-satellite routing protocols between LEOs okay. and LEOs and LEOs. And it turned out um, I was too early. <laughs> so doing doing relay and routing in space uh, is, is only a thing now. It really wasn't a thing 25 years ago. Yeah. And uh, then 20 years ago, Steve Wozniak and I started a GPS locator company called Wheels of Zeus just after I'd left Apple. And um, Wheels was focused on building GPS locators for kids and dogs. It was like Apple tags 15 years ago. I noticed a theme. Yeah. <laughs> There's a theme. And uh, yeah, turns out timing is important. I hope I hope we're on time now. <laughs> But back then, we, we both noted that, you know, there was no system on a chip for GPS 20 years ago. You had to do it mm. all yourself. You had to build the hardware. You had to calculate ephemeris. You had to do the software, the packaging, the power management. And we noted that there were about 2,000 things on orbit 20 years ago, and about half of them were dead satellites. We didn't even know about the debris. I mean, we knew about the dead satellites because we could see and track them. We didn't know about the debris because we didn't have phasery radar that was publicly available that would even show us the debris. So all we really knew about was fairly large things. And we used to joke, mm -hmm. about, you know, someday maybe we'd be the first space sanitation engineers and we'd ride on the back of the trash truck and we'd toss these dead satellites into the compactor. Yeah. But this is, this is the definition of the tragedy of the commons. Because 20 years later, I had had the, the privilege of building a company, Ripcord, doing really well. And Ripcord was started while I was at NASA Ames, where I got to spend five wonderful years working for a, an incredible cast of characters, including uh, Chris Kemp, who's now Astro CEO, who sure. back to our CTO at Ames. And, uh, you know, Waz called me out of the blue last year to just ask about, you know, what would it be like if we were to actually be serious about cleaning up space? How could we do it? What would it take? And he asked me to just take a look at that and help him build a thesis. And I called him back a couple weeks later after, you know, phoning every friend in the space community I've got, basically shared with him the terrifying findings of operating in low Earth orbit in 2020. <laughs> One. And, uh, you know, the, the biggest challenges were, I mean, first of all, we can't even see debris smaller than 10 centimeters reliably from ground. So we only see a fraction of what's in space. And then the deviation in our best tracking sources, including those, those private companies that track things in space and governments that track things in space, mm -hmm. the average mean deviation in the low Earth orbit catalog is 200 kilometers in real time. So how do you dock with something? You know, how would you get the trash truck to the trash can if you don't agree on where the trash can is within 200 kilometers? Mm. And then even if you could find it, we can't reliably determine if you can rendezvous with it. So we don't even know reliably if you can dock with it because we don't really have a way in this second to know the tumble rate and spin rate of the object you're going to dock with. And there's not an automated way to do a maneuver plan to be able mm. to dock with it if you could. So we're talking about what we refer to in the space community as non-dynamic cooperative rendezvous. So mm. you can mm. safely dock with it, but it can't talk back to you. It can't tell you anything about it. 
And then we don't have astrodynamics that work, right? So we have astrodynamics that assume everything in space is a cannonball or a sphere, and we don't have any mm -hmm. satellites mm -hmm. that look like Sputnik. So this means that where we leave something when we're tracking it and where we assume it will be when it returns is almost never the case. Um, we also don't have any traffic management or control. We don't have any multi or international um, collaboration on launch. So we have a lot of, I say none, I mean, we have limited, it's too limited. And we don't have any notion of a conjunction management service. So we don't have like the traffic lights in space or the stop signs in space. We don't even have the road rules in space. It's mm. very hard to determine right away. So when I talked to Steve about this. I said, look, there's a lot of wonderful companies, including, you know, those like Astroscale and ClearSpace and others working on space cleanup. Yeah. But all of the infrastructure needed to make it come true and make it a reality is missing. And if, if I were in your shoes, uh, you know, and I had the capability to do it, I would start looking at building a Google Maps or Waves of Space, which is kind of what Wayfinder is today. And to my total surprise, Steve said, great, I think we should do that. And I was like, we? And, uh, you know, I... I got very lucky and um, he gave me the opportunity to play CEO for, for Privateer while we build this, this platform. And uh, we quickly realized not long after this that all the things we needed to do in space to track space from space were, you know, 70 to 80% of capability people wanted to use in space. Why should we hog that for ourselves and then put more things in space that people can't mm. use? We should make our own space assets more useful and we should make them more accessible and more available to people doing amazing work on climate study, on oceanographic yep. research, atmospheric, beyond. And, and that's what we're doing today. So it's uh, that's a long-winded response to a great question. It's been a while. <laughs> Thank you. There's so much to unpack. And, and by the way, just starting with the sort of space sustainability, and I think you somewhere mentioned maybe ships or oceans as a comparison. And I mean, what you just mentioned, it sounds like almost scary, right? Because if you if you were to kind of translate what you described as a current situation in space to like the oceans, it sounds like it's almost like if you, you took a boat out in the ocean, you kind of basically have no idea what's out there. Or like you maybe within like, okay, oceans are smaller, but maybe within 50 miles or so, you know, like, Oh, there's maybe a boat somewhere. You assume all of the boats are basically the same shape, like big boxes. Yes. <laughs> you, don't, you don't know how to behave. You don't know how to avoid them. No, and you know, unlike in the ocean, you know, you can't just call starboard on somebody and say, I have the right of way. Yes. And the, the, the crazy one of the craziest things is that most of our international space treaty and, and outer space act and, and agreements are almost entirely based on international salvage law or maritime law. And all of the notions in those laws are things that we haven't really updated since the early 1970s. Mm. So they're all missing the pieces that could enable enforcement. Right now, I mean, how do you enforce a law that doesn't exist? You just don't. Sure. So we have a lot of people in space that are operating, doing things that are, uh, it's an interpretive art, right? They, they look at the treaty and the acts and they go, how would I think about this in terms of my business? And then they bend those rules to benefit them, which is pretty sad. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so it, it, it kind of gets into sort of um, I guess the, the, the domain awareness aspect, right? Because sometimes we call it like space situational awareness, but then it's a domain, which is like the, I guess the military guys you know, like to use more. And there's sort of so many aspects of that. Some are scarier than others, right? So, um, you know, it, it could be monitoring trash, basically debris, right? But it also could be monitoring. If, if you don't understand what's going on with the trash, but definitionally you also don't know what's possibly going on with some you know, say, enemy or strategic competitor doing not so nice things possibly in some orbit, I guess. It's also led to the problem of, you know, 85% of geospace is fully commercially insured. Only 2% mm. of LEO is. Yeah. Like why Why is that? Well, it's, it's the known unknowns. It's the things we're talking about that have prevented insurance products to, to really proliferate LEO. And 
you know, where insurance goes, bizarrely enough, there's there's a byproduct of being able to insure something. It means that the environment is safe enough that the insurance is affordable. Because right now yeah. you could insure a Leo, but it's not affordable. There's too many known unknowns. Yeah. And I think one sort of like silly example that drove home the unknowns for me is if you remember like a few months ago there was this like rocket stage about to hit the moon or maybe it hit the moon i forget now <laughs> it was like first it was like oh it's a falcon second stage for uh, spacex falcon. then it was like oh it's a chinese rocket and i was like we don't know what it is <laughs> like okay so there's uh, what's uh, you know fairly large objects that's like objects in space go like tumbling goes to the moon and we seem to have no idea what it is <laughs> Isn't that crazy, you know, that the, the gap between science fact and science fiction is so great? The idea that we, we watch Star Trek or Star Wars and we've got teleportation and we've got a replicator and we've got the ability to beam ourselves to ground and transporters and all this stuff. And then what about this, this you know, this stage that's that's going to hit the moon or was going to hit the moon that did hit the moon? We It came from planet Earth. It left here. It's a very big object. It's heading for a long time to the moon, and we don't agree on whose it is or where it came from or what it is, how good can our space tracking be? I mean, what, even, um, you know, it, it kind of it kind of leads down the path of when the Russians blew up Cosmos 1408 in November, uh, the topic that we're probably not supposed to talk about. Mm. You know, did anybody see it happen? Mm. I mean, uh, if the Russians hadn't taken credit for it and they hadn't issued a notice to their airmen, that there was going to be a missile launch at that point in the morning, would have any of us known that that had occurred? Or, or would have we made a radical assumption? Because when we saw Cosmos 1408 over our radar, it was one object. The next time mm. we saw it, there were many objects, mm. many pieces of it, right? Did we see the missile hit it? No. Do we know the total mass of Cosmos 1408 and of the missile that hit it? No. Do we know the mass of the debris that we can see now versus the combined mass of those two things? No. So do we know how much debris we can't see? No. <laughs> this is a terrifying situation. And it's a and it's a bizarre one also because several other satellites went dead very soon after Cosmos 1408 was taken. And several were interfered with, meaning that they were on a conjunction, you know, mm. path some of the debris and they had to move. Uh, to avoid it. And that that situation tells you an awful lot about what it's like operating in this dynamic environment of space. Even if you go to Wayfinder today and you look at Cosmos 1408 debris, you'll find pieces of Cosmos 1408 scattered all over the globe. It's not just in one orbital plane because the explosion mm -hmm. sent crash sure. everywhere. Any any vector away from the, yeah sure mm -hmm. yeah but this these these problems mean that operating in space right now and we're talking near Earth space low Earth orbit space is incredibly dangerous and it's if we really want to become a spacefaring peoples if we want to really make our future in the stars we cannot you know really pollute the fishbowl that we're living in because this this is a holistic ecosystem of planet Earth and we may be destroying. It's not just the out. It's not the emergency exit door. It's the next frontier. We may be really gumming that up for future generations. And, you know, it's just like our atmosphere. There, there's a certain point where people get to an apathetic place where they believe that they can't undo the damage. And in space, 
we know we can undo the damage, but we have to undo it one step at a time, just like we messed it up one step at a time. Uh, so I, I still am an optimist. I'm still a believer that we can go do this, but we need really serious people and really great tools to go do it. And, you know, hopefully privateer becomes a gateway drug to some of those people trying to do that great work. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, so we have all of these exciting projections out there now, and we're all excited about the space sector, and you and I are, right, obviously. But people in general are getting more excited, and reports come out, like I think it was Citigroup yesterday, like, you know, trillion-dollar space economy by 2040. But they were like, okay, that space economy is taking place in a place, as you point out, which is actually still quite dangerous, and that we really have very little knowledge about. Um, and, and, yeah, many dangers are, are lurking. But I guess one of the problems is, again, you mentioned the ocean, and you just mentioned the atmosphere and you know we have we do not have a good track record obviously at you know the, treating the oceans <laughs> of treating the atmosphere and that's partly because you know they're as in economics we say they're like exam perfect examples of what we call the tragedy of the commons right common goods that nobody feels responsible for but everybody utilizes and everybody overutilizes in some way and that's of course happening with the earth orbits at the moment right that people just throw stuff up there and uh, at some point in time it's just going to have a negative uh, negative impacts for everybody but tragedies of the commons are notoriously difficult to exit i mean it's god knows how many economic papers on that uh, how, how do you see this evolving do, do we have a chance of exiting that? How, how do you see the path there? You know, th this is going to sound totally counterintuitive, but to some degree in space, um, to quote Gordon Gecko, greed is good. <laughs> and, the, and what I mean by that is that people who want to benefit from operating in space uh, economically or otherwise do not want to lose their ability to do that. Mm. And the biggest companies operating in space are not the biggest polluters. Like I, I would not cast that type of a lens or shadow on SpaceX with really good mm -hmm. people trying to be very, very mindful about how they operate. Yeah. The dangers are actually the less informed operators. It's the smaller companies, it's the smaller constellation operators where they don't have the communication or the capability or the track record or the knowledge of the environment to be able to operate safely and sustainably. And I suspect these things will get fixed because of economics. I mean, all these companies putting up mega constellations, they learn something pretty important from planet Earth. If it's not connected to terrestrial planet Earth, how do you tax it? Is there mm. property tax in space? No. So if, if you wanted to build the next space-based kind of cell phone network and you could do it without Earth-based taxation and maintenance and property taxes and fees, and now you just have to do mission management and constellation management and manage your assets in space. And when they no longer suit you, you can basically burn them up. I think it creates an environment where those people who will benefit the most from operating in space will make sure that they can continue to do it. And they are they are not economically disinclined to do it. So you find a lot of operators in space that are setting aside funds to think about how do we operate more safely in space? How do we clean up space? How do we make sure we don't make any more debris? Um, so I, I'm I'm actually very optimistic that this is one of those environments where the the economic value is going to set big companies trying to do the right thing in the right way. Uh, I mean, I could be totally wrong, but I, I don't I don't believe if, if I were sitting in Elon's shoes, there's nothing that I would want to interfere with Starlink. I would mm. not want trash or my inability to put up more satellites to come into play. And I would I would make some economic bet or hedge that says I must keep my operating environment clean. So that um, that would sort of explain or incentivize that you are, uh, I guess, being a good actor now. And I think I, I think I totally agree with you there. But of course, you know, we have a you know, call it seventy year history of just like legacy stuff up there, right? 
<laughs> people, 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 we still have the Apollo 12 rocket tube, you know, body tumbling I mean, around. In, 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 including some cool stuff, actually, right? Yeah, I mean, some of, some of this you may want to get back. But, you know, the funny thing is we don't even know the material properties of those things. We have all these rocket bodies floating around Earth. We don't know how much fuel's left in them. We don't know what happens to it when you go to grip it. We don't know what it's made out of. We don't know if you crush it like a, a, a Coke can, if it's going to blow up when you go to grab it. We have no idea. And, and this, is, this is something where this is really for the greater good. This is for the betterment of humankind. Uh, it doesn't matter you know, what nation state flag is on it. it. It means that we have to come up with a way to not just talk about all these things, but also be able to know that what we're talking about is the same object. Like there's a mm. missing Rosetta Stone of space. You know, a, a Vimple catalog ID and a NORAD catalog ID are not the same thing. So you may find that an object that you're talking about is the same object that I'm talking about, and we talk about it with two different catalog ID numbers, and we just talk past each other. These are really basic problems that are currently still in existence in space. So it's very early. So if, if I was to sort of like look at a certain region of space now and define it by some common like system, like the Keplerian whatever uh, <laughs> coordinates and... Would we have a relatively, so you're saying there isn't like any like one accepted sort of like map of what's in that subspace? No, there, there's not one accepted map. And, and it's even it's even worse than that because the objects that we agree on what the object is, because the 200 kilometer mean deviation in the space catalog, mm. we don't agree on where it is. Not in real time and not often. And this is, um, you know, this leads to a lot of challenges because now it's, You find a lot of companies playing Lord of the Rings where their data is the data that must be the most exquisite, most perfect data. And that's just not true. Uh, there's no one company that's going to get this problem right. It's going to take a lot of companies and a lot of data to try to come up with what is the right answer because the outlier right now could be totally right. So yeah. we have to really you know, work around this and treat it like, like the science experiment project that it is, not, you know, not like the guesswork that it, it currently is uh, from an economic standpoint. It's kind of funny. It's sort of like the 200 kilometers, it reminds me sort of like a high school, like quantum chemistry is sort of like, there's this cloud where the electron is. We don't know where exactly, but it's somewhere in there. It's, yeah, it's in, it's in the bubble, right? It's okay. It's just it's bouncing around in there. It's doing magical things. It's just my pro pro probabilistically, you just want to try to avoid it. But do you think so? Um, let's say you guys in a private, you know, like privateer, like through one of its applications is successful in like, you know, um, creating something like the, Google Maps or some competitor of Google-like maps <laughs> of space. Um, is, that, is that enough or do you think we actually have to clean up legacy stuff as well? well we, we have to clean up legacy stuff. I mean, the, the challenge is every single thing that we put in space will die. So mm. the, the thing that space things share with us as, as humans is that this is a zero-sum game. You know, none of us will make it out alive, including the satellites. So we have to have a plan for what happens at their end of life and what the responsible thing to do is. And then we have to have enforcement to make sure that people do it. Because most people will try to do the right thing. I, I believe that. But some people will bend the rules to their benefit, and some people will ignore the rules altogether. And I think they're by far the minority. I don't think it's bad people doing bad things in space. And, and that's largely because most of those people that really operate in space are scientists, for the most part. They're not war fighters. They're not politicians. They're not the people making the rules on the ground. They're people doing really hard work in space. Um, so I'm, I'm a believer that those really smart people with really good intentions will try to do the right thing. But, you know, part of the reason that Privateer is building this kind of application layer for space that combines the software capabilities and microservices with 
on urban infrastructure is to make it possible that people that want to focus on these really hard problems have the ability and the technology to do it mm-hmm. without having to necessarily put more things in space. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if you have 20 cameras overflying Kiev and they're all getting images of about the same spot on planet Earth at about the same resolution, why couldn't we just have one and share it? <laughs> um, why, why did we need 20? And I think that that question is the question that we spend a lot of time looking at. You know, what are the types of things? Are they cameras? Are they radar? Are they sensors of various types? Are they, you know, uh, what, what types of technology go on orbit and why? How do people use them? How can we consolidate those things and encourage people to make the capability they already have available to developers? And, you know, I use the word developer, but it really means like commercial company, government, science, you know, researchers, uh, academia. Mm-hmm. It just becomes a question of who needs the capability and can we provide it to them at a cost and, and at a reliable availability that meets or exceeds anything they've seen at a cost that's like a tenth of the cost of what they would pay to do it on a hosted payload. I think that that's, that's coming at this problem from both sides. It's like track, which is kind of sense and detect and monitor mm-hmm, track. Mm-hmm. And then it's the other side, which is provide the capability to not have to put more things up so that we can limit the amount of trash that goes on orbit. And and that's not a selfish privateer thing. That's not saying no one should put things in space. I think a lot of people should put things in space, but we should find a way to encourage those people with those capabilities to make them available to the broader space community so we can share them, so we we can use them better. Yes, so, so that's an interesting question. Yeah, I agree with you. It's really like such a nice vision if you have. And and in my venture fund, you know, if I currently speak about sort of investing in space at conferences, I very often talk about um, basically infrastructure versus applications, right? And I think this is what you're getting at, right? Sort of like, again, we could also draw the comparison to the internet. It's sort of like, we now seem to have a lot of the basic infrastructure for space. And what I mean by that is like, you know, launch capability, but 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 also what you're talking about, sort of like satellites and sensor suites. A lot of that is actually a lot of that is in place, and even more of that is coming online in like the next few years, right? So increasingly, really, we we as investors also think our attention should shift to like, okay, what kind of applications can we run on top of that, right? And sort of like unleash human creativity, which I admire a lot, and I'm a total optimist, and unleash this human creativity of entrepreneurs, of developers, and so forth on top of that infrastructure. Do you, do you think the space ecosystem is ready for that? Is it like, for example, is it is it open enough? Because that that's presupposed like an open environment, as you describe, right? I, I think it's getting very close. Like, I think the timing is very, very, very close. And, you know, like I said, I mean, I've been in and out of the space community for the last 25 years. And every time, it's like the mafia. Every time I think I'm out, I'm back in. Um, and the thing that makes this time around very, very different is that all of the writing is on the wall that people are utilizing space in a pervasive way. They, they're actually utilizing space and don't even know it. That's what makes transformative technology great, right? It's like the mm-hmm. TV remote. I mean, I was the TV remote when I grew up. My dad would look at me and tell me, go change the channel. And, you know, I would get up and click, click, click. And then the TV remote came around and I lost my job to a better technology, which was great because nobody wants to be a TV remote. Mm-hmm. Um, but in space... We have a lot of point-to-point financial transactions. Everybody thinks about navigation because GPS is kind of the free universal service at Mm -hmm. this point. But no one thinks about all the other things between those two things, the point-to-point financial transactions and 
the navigation capability mm. that impact our daily lives in terms of communications and you know other uh, financial instruments and and how these things relate to uh, climate research, oceanographic research, atmospheric research, how this relates to uh, humanitarian aid or refugee tracking and movements or of course there's the military applications on intelligence and targeting and other things but that's that's its own beast that is outside of the realm of you know humanity doing great things to try to improve life on earth from space so i i think we're focused on on this piece of how will people utilize this infrastructure and it feels to me like we are one small step away from a couple of kids in a dorm room dreaming up their next application that needs an asset in space going wow i wish i could do that if only i had that on a satellite and then realizing oh no that's actually available and i can get it through this api and i can use an existing space asset to do it and now i can do it for 5 bucks and you know a bag of cheetos that's <laughs> that's coming very very soon and it only takes the first one to show the way to the others now the problem is we are at a stage where it's a chicken and egg game you need the infrastructure to inspire people to the idea that they can use it for almost no money mm-hmm. Before you see the first killer consumer space applications come out the other side. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, it's a bunch of people going, well, what happens different with Space Tender or Space Uber or Space mm-hmm. DoorDash? What, what is the difference? I mean, don't those things already use GPS? What will happen when there's that type of an app that's powered by space for people on planet Earth? You know, I mean, John Doerr writes this, this billion dollar or billion one check to Stanford University for the climate school. And the whole thesis was we will, you know, the climate science will be the next computer science, that we will hack our climate the way that we've hacked software. And if that's true, and I think, you know, John's a brilliant guy, and this certainly seems like something that, that's near and dear to my heart. If that comes true, we're going to do it from space. Mm. Not going to hack the climate from planet, within planet Earth because we don't have the vantage point we require. I mean, imagine doing a study over the poles and checking erosion of, you know, ice caps, polar ice caps. Imagine looking at that once a month or once a year versus 16 times a day on a low Earth orbit satellite. Mm -hmm. Of course, space is going to be a key technology to better understand our climate. All these applications are coming and uh, they're going to change the world in ways that we can't even imagine. And so let's talk a little bit how that, you know, then looks in practice. Just, I mean, not super detailed because, I mean, that's, you know, you guys are probably still working on and maybe even confidential, but sort of at the core, I guess you want to make it easy for those, again, whatever you want to call them, developers, entrepreneurs, the creative people to do some some interesting application that uses space assets, right? And so you obviously have background from from, from Apple. <laughs> Your co-founder was obviously has background from Apple as, as a co-founder. So I can kind of use Apple analogies, I guess. It's sort of like, so in the Apple ecosystem, you have basically, okay, you want to write like a app for iPhone. You have all of these, you know, easy, I guess, convenient uh, elements of that, right? So, okay, I want to develop the app. So I go to, I have it here on my desktop. I go to Xcode, right? I have a development environment, an easy, de- well, some people say it's not easy, but whatever. Like you have some, 
potentially convenient developing environment where you can do the app, I guess, in a space context that would then um, also um, basically include sort of automa automatic data feeds or access to the data feeds, right? So uh, as a developer, you don't actually have to know like, oh, um, I need to go to, I don't know, ISI or Capella because they have something called synthetic aperture radar data. And that seems way too complicated and detailed, right? And then another part of the, on the other side of the Apple ecosystem, um, I'm using Apple here, I could use Google as well, but just an example that's close to your heart. You have the App Store, right? So kind of you develop the app, you can put it right in the App Store. Is that sort of, is that sort of the ecosystem I should imagine when I imagine what privateers targeting? Yeah, I, I think so. I'm actually going to have you pitch the company in the future. So I don't <laughs> But I, I, th I think that is the right, that's the right approach. And, um, you know, the, the apps are the types of things I, I can easily envision waking up in my college dorm room and thinking, you know, I wonder if we could track or, or eliminate or reduce illegal commercial fishing off the coast of Alaska. Okay. Mm -hmm. How do we do that? Right. Oh boy. If, if only I had a camera so I could see the ships. Mm -hmm. If only I had a, a radio deck so I would know what frequencies they're operating on, or what the transponders are on. If only I had the ability to, to correlate that with shipping schedules and commercial fishing licenses. Boy, I could probably piece together when someone is doing something bad in commercial fishing um, fairly easily if I had those capabilities. Okay, how many of those capabilities need to be space enabled? Well, radio deck, for sure, that would be nice. Um, images, that would be nice. Mm -hmm. um, now I have all of these microservices and things that I will need to use to make this possible. So uh, what, what do I need there? Oh, I need an image classifier. So I need to use some machine learning to build uh, basically a model for all of what these commercial fishing vessels look like. And I need to piece these things together. You know, ideally, I should be able to wake up in my dorm room and look up which of those capabilities are available through which APIs. I should be able to write my app and have it running by the afternoon on on-orbit infra at a cost that, you know, is the equivalent of going out and having lunch, right? That's coming very, very, very soon. And once, once it does, once you see the first app running and you can see the impact, then the next app comes, right? And the next one and the next one. And then there's, there's iterative evolution. The first step is a revolution, right? And I think that's what we're on right now is a revolution. The rest of it's going to become evolution. And the evolution is going to be people are going to get inspiration when they see what they could do in space that they've never been able to do before mm -hmm. and get to a new level. I mean, even imagine coastal erosion. You know, you, you wake up and you wonder, is this beach my, my house going to go away? How could I tell? Well, could I use a camera overflying this beach every day, 16 times a day? to map that and tie it to tidal conditions and then the actual erosion with the seafloor map? Yeah. How much would that cost? 10 bucks a day? 20 bucks a day? Something pervasively easy and inexpensive should enable that app um, so that you can do incredible things. These things and, and many, many, many more things that we can't dream of are coming, but they should be completely available through this type of um, capability, whether it's on orbit or on the ground, right? If it's ground-based tracking, maybe you want to focus on proximity operations. Maybe you want to help companies rendezvous in space. Maybe you want to help people not crash in space. That sounds good. You should be able to do all of that using the capability of companies that are already looking at the stars and companies that are looking at planet Earth and be able to utilize that for the benefit of all humankind. And, and don't get me wrong, greed's involved, right? Build an app. Mm -hmm. Solve the problem, make a couple of dollars. That's great too. Um, that way you don't. That way you don't disappear, right? But uh, yeah, com coming soon. 
So, so one of the, I don't want to call it issue, but let's call it issue anyway. We have right now in the space sector, of course, that it's sort of um, colloquially, colloquially anything space is like basically rocket science, right? And it does extend a little bit to things like sensors, right? Because um, if you're not careful, you can make it very complicated, right? It's sort of, and that, of course, I guess you don't want that because what we ideally want is we want to enable developers who don't have a space background to um, develop apps to to solve pro- interesting problems, right? Um, so the, my question, I guess, is sort of like how much education is needed there and how much can we abs- abstract things away, right? Because, uh, I mean, tell me if you disagree, but I guess we don't want like a guy who's developing to think about or actually even know, okay, what is synthetic aperture radar? We just want him to know, hey, there's this data stream. It can see through clouds and it can see at night, right? It's like on that level. I, I think that's right. And I, I think I think it comes back to that idea that when we took, talk about emerging science or emerging um, technology areas, we we never would make the assumption that we would throw away the toolbox, right? Like if, if climate is the next computer science, guess what? We're going to use all the rules that we've learned in computer science and we're going to apply them to climate. Mm-hmm. Um, the same thing's true for space. So I, I think, you know, people are not going to start from scratch. They're not going to have to learn a new high-level language. They're not going to have to mm-hmm. learn a new set of rules. They're going to be able to just apply those and say, this is a new thing that's observational. It's a sensor, it's a radio antenna, it's you know radar, it's a camera, it's optics, it's images. And then, okay, what are all those things that we do terrestrially? And the, the first logical evolution will be, let's try doing those in space um, and see if we get a different perspective. And then we'll start to see the infrastructure flip. Right, right now, all of the infrastructure we're putting in space, for the most part, like ninety percent of it, is focused on Earth. Ten percent is focused on deeper space. Mm-hmm. But pretty soon, you know, somebody on their way to Mars is going to want to watch Netflix or Amazon Prime. So we need uh, persistent. You know, I mean, here we are. We're trying to solve internet connectivity on planet Earth. We're going to need it in space soon. And all the things that we take for granted here on planet Earth, we're going to have to provide that infrastructure in space. So is it coming? Yeah, yeah, it's coming. And we know it's coming because the launch cost is going to continue to go mm-hmm. lower and lower and lower. And that will mean people will want to go do those things and explore those opportunities. And uh, they'll be able to afford to do it. I mean, a cost, a, a tourist cost to space right now, a ticket to go to space for space tourism, is about the same amount of money as what we talk about when you fly around the world. When you have a couple of stops around planet Earth, if you're flying first class, you're paying basically for the same price ticket. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that can afford that ticket. Sure. Yeah. And I guess, so So thinking about the, the apps, let's explore this a little bit. I guess the other question is, if I remember correctly, when, so the first app store started, like Apple's, uh, Apple's, you know, iPhone came out, the app store, they did a few apps basically themselves, right? Just to kickstart the whole thing. Is that, I guess that's what you guys are doing with the, uh, the space situational awareness and things like that. So I, I guess that's sort of the same strategy you guys are pursuing. For, for sure. I mean, and, and they're not the only, the, the focus isn't, purely on SSA or FDA or FTM, they're in a weird way, it's like mail and, and Safari and notes, right? Like you, you may prefer Outlook and Evernote and Chrome. And that's great. There's plenty of room for developers and other companies to, you know, to participate and also compete. And we see the same thing at Privateer. I mean, we're not in competition with any SSA company. Mm. I mean, um, so I, I don't I don't see us as a competitor to anybody in the SSA or FDA or STM market, we may provide capability that looks like some of the things that they, they sell, but our motivation in life there, as you said, is kind of a demonstrator application. Like how much money does Apple make off of providing the mail app? Yeah. It's mistakes. 
Um, and we feel the same way about Wayfinder and RailSec. And we also do think they could be disruptive bridges, right? And what I mean by that is if you have a whole number of companies trying to make a living off of conjunction servicing, which conjunction servicing in space, this is just a, a space way of saying, well, let's make it possible for people not to crash in space. Yeah. Really? Yes. It should not be optional to crash in space. Like we should not have a business model that extorts the space community to use our conjunction service to not crash in space. So we're giving away RELSIC at a certain time limit, 24 hours ahead. We're not doing that to upset companies in the SSA space. We're doing that to make operating in space safer and more accessible and sustainable. Yeah, I mean, that seems like air, tra air traffic control, right? It should, just, right? it should actually just be there. Yeah. And no, nobody, when they fire up their plane and try to get a clearance to leave the runway, have the air traffic controller go, you know, please deposit 25 cents for next 15 minutes. Like, it's not pay for play. It's a service, and it's something that we need to enable the space community with. So I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that there will be some disruption by the elimination of extortive behavior. Right? You can't, you can't extort a community for something that should be a free and available service. It's like breathing. You can't charge people to breathe. Or if, if anything, like air traffic control, it could be sort of like you know, indirectly charged for because if, basically air traffic control people people pay for via taxes, right? But it's, so, it's like so important to the community that it should be paid for on that level, I suppose, right? Yeah, and, and if you think about it, everything that has gone up up until very recently, up until the last 10 years, most of the things that went up were launched by our governments doing things that were in their best interests that are on behalf of our best interests in theory. So our tax dollars should continue to pay for some of this basic infrastructure, uh, but some of it, you know, like your neighborhood stop sign or traffic light, somebody had to be paid to install it, but they're not things that are extortively priced, right? They're not things that, geez, I have to wonder, can I afford the, the stop sign or do I have to just run it? <laughs> do I just drive straight through it and don't stop because I can't afford to stop? Um, yeah. And, and this, is, this is the situation in space now. So you have to sort of like really, you know, call it basic apps, like the, um, uh, the construction warnings uh, as one of the apps you're starting with. Then you have, you already alluded to some sort of other, let me call it like semi-obvious apps, right? Like, you know, remote, related to remote sensing for climate, for other purposes. Is there any sort of like, you know, fun apps you can think of that, I don't know, people are under-focused on or something that sort of, you know, you have thought about that, oh, there really should be this app that's running on space infrastructure? Well, it's funny, right? But it's like the, the, the fun the fun needs to come. And, and, so, and, and so the reason I'm asking this, right, is sort of, like, again, if I draw the analogy to like iPhones or cell phones and the smartphones in general, right, it's sort of like, you know, yeah, we, we kept like, oh, wait, now we have mail and maps and then... And then Candy Crush came and like killed like all of the other apps basically. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, you know it's going to become a form of very bizarre space voyeurism, right? Because you're going to end up with the kid laying in the backyard playing a video game in space, right? And um, that you're going to find the you know the satellites coming by with the ability for you to pay to display a message over your house or to blink the satellite and change the colors of the lights. And then the next thing you know, you've got Flappy Fish, and you have no idea why you're using it, but it's really interesting to watch these satellites light up and change colors at your request. You know, it's, it's as yeah. close as, as mankind is going to get to controlling the heavens um, for yes. a long time, right? So this is, there, there are things that are going to come that are probably going to be driven by vanity and fun and ridiculousness, and there's nothing wrong with that as long as that doesn't add additional danger to the operating environment, right? As long as these games that we choose to play uh, become a gateway drug to cleaning up space and making it more safe and more accessible, and that's all good. And uh, I suspect there's going to be a lot of this. It's going to be, uh, you know, it, it's, hey, when you wish upon a star, sometimes it's going to be when you wish upon a satellite. Uh, yes. And 
you know, we, we see this even, even now with uh, companies, you know, doing, I would call them, uh, you know, vanity plays in space, right? You can, you can name the satellite after your, your mm-hmm. dog, you name it after grandma. Uh, that's, that's a gateway drug because once people have it and see it, it's like people who tried to, you know, sign up to buy a spot on the moon. Uh, I mean, that doesn't really work that way, but it's, it's interesting that there's enough people that want it, but that they'll do it. So I think there's all kinds of fun stuff coming. And I, I wouldn't be surprised to see actual video games get played out in space mm-hmm. where you can actually partially witness them from Earth, right? Because then it's like it's like the it's like the game channel where you know people voyeuristically watch other people play video games. That made no sense to anyone. But you may find people actually wanting to do these things from Earth and play in space. And I wouldn't be surprised to see a huge audience. It's like uh, you know your your space-based football team coming soon. Yeah, yeah, you have the, some of these projects which were already proposed at some point in time, like the uh, you know remote-controlled rover racing on the moon, or uh, oh, yeah. the Japanese the Japanese company that, that that wanted to do like the artificial meteor showers, right, with metal balls. You could have a bunch of those up there that you then go in the app and like, oh, I'm going to do an artificial meteor shower for my girlfriend. Or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised at all. I'm sure I'm sure love will play a factor. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, human creativity really is uh, is lim- is limitless. So, do you guys feel like you have so in building up this ecosystem, you guys have all of the pieces in place, or is there something is there something that still you know you think is like the biggest to do? So, we've talked about sort of like a development environment, the data sources, the infrastructure is there that it has to be open. Um, uh, obviously, sort of like an app store. Um, I guess you need to make sure that the actually develop developer community, for the lack of a better word, is there as well, right? Or do you assume that's basically gonna gonna be there? And event yeah i mean we, we think that this is like a rising tide because there are companies that are probably slightly spooked to think that we are a space situation awareness company or mm. that we are disrupting them somehow and i i think the the reality of that is going to be no 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 we really want everyone to play together on a level playing field so if there are companies that have the the capability but need on-orbit infra or ground-based infra. Maybe they have some but would like more. It would be a benefit to actually have them share or consume each other's stuff. Mm-hmm. This is kind of the gateway drug because now it's, oh, geez, I have a, a ground-based space situation awareness company using phase array looking at the stars. Wouldn't it be great if I had some space-based SSA capability on mm-hmm. somebody's mm-hmm. satellite? Mm-hmm. Great, I can have it too. It's it's an and, not an or. And I, think I, I, that- I agree, yeah. It's huge. It's, it's like, again, if I was trying to make some, I don't know, it's valid, but some most terrestrial like mobile phone comparison. If, if it's like if before the app store, maybe you had like some, you know, your, your own standalone dating app somewhere on a website, right? Maybe that was okay. But you sort of ideally by moving it onto the app store and gaining access to like the, the ecosystem, you should actually make it better and like get benefit from that, right? I guess that's the idea. Yeah, yeah I think so. Okay, so what's the... um. What's the time frame for all of this? When do you think we have this um, operational in various stages? Well, Wayfinder's up now. So you can go to privateer.com and you can visit Wayfinder. And we do, you know, sprints every couple of weeks. So you'll see new features getting added that we're not announcing, but they're kind of Easter eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's already very, very useful because it's got a lot of publicly available sources of tracking data that are very good. Wayfinder Pro is coming very soon. Uh, RELSIC, our conjunction service, is going to be open to the public in the next 60 days, which is great. And the onward infra and development environment is, is coming very, very soon. So we'll be making some announcements in September on timeline of actual specific infrastructure. But uh, that's that's a really tight timeline. I mean, we are we are on a, a very, very fast pace to, to make these capabilities available. 
But you're saying infrastructure that's that's your own, your own like privateer infrastructure. Yeah, but but with partners as well. So it's not mm -hmm. it's never a one way street, right? We want to encourage people to play well um, with us and with others. So we'll have some things coming on other people's infrastructure as well. Okay, but by the way, I forgot to ask you why why the name privateer? How did that come about? It turns out Amazon was taken, which was very depressing. <laughs> um, so now we, you know. The thing here is that there is a maritime underpinning of space, mm -hmm. and we like the idea that, you know, today there are things broken in the Space Act and treaties in terms of how we treat things that are in space. These space objects came from ports. Those ports are launch sites. Those launch sites are nation or nation state controlled. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I thought it was really, it was actually kind of um, comical in some ways, but a lot of what we're doing is using available infrastructure for our benefit and for the benefit of the larger space community. I'm not mm -hmm. saying we're pirating it, but we're certainly mm -hmm. making it available. So uh, we, we thought that was that was entertaining. And you know, hey, it's 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 hard to find a good top level domain now. I mean, you know, look at look at uh, you know Apple was taken, Google was taken, Amazon was so, taken. So, so, Privateer was privateer.com was actually available? No, it wasn't available, but it was more available. It turns out they wanted less right. money for privateer.com than Amazon wanted for Amazon.com. So we didn't have it. We had no more choice. Right, 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 right. Makes sense. Um, Alex, just a few closing questions um, for fun. So in no particular order. One, you are, where are you based? We're based in Maui, Hawaii. Okay. And I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely not jealous right now, clearly. <laughs> Only because I just came back from the Bahamas. But don't worry, it's it's like 78 degrees out there in clear skies all the time. How is how is it to be based in in Maui? Um, you know, what's the ecosystem like? I guess there is a very um, prominent um, space related conference um, in the neighborhood every year, at least. Yeah, Amos. Amos Tech is is here every September. This is the 23rd year. This will be the second year that we get to be a sponsor for the conference, mm -hmm. and it's a fantastic event because it is the only event that is truly only focused on space situational awareness, domain awareness, traffic management as a marketplace. And, you know, you have however many thousand people show up and end up having real world conversations and an incredible number of academic sessions where you can sneak off and have a cocktail and have a very serious conversation with 10 of the top space CEOs on the beach. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, you know, not have to worry about, uh, you know, paparazzi snapping photos of them or, uh, without having to worry about kind of brainstorming new capability that may want to come to market. So it's a wonderful conference. And Maui's being the 23rd year that the conference has been here, it's one of the longest running space conferences in the world. And, uh, you know, being in the middle of the South Pacific in the middle of Indochina conflict and a whole bunch of other interesting things make mm -hmm. Maui a wonderful place to do space observation, which is why there's always a telescope being protested by someone. Um, and there's also a great amount of young space startup companies in a very small community. So we've got about 20 space startups within about two miles of our office. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it's incredible, including the, the regular suspects, right? Including the Air Force and Space Force and Boeing and Northrop sure. and Aubrey and KPR and others. There's a bunch of young companies doing really innovative things that they can only really do from here, which it's created an incredible ecosystem for us to steal talent from each other at the, you know, the beer bash on Friday night. Yeah. And it's, there's, there's, there's also something nice to sort of in your, I guess, recruiting efforts when you sort of like, uh, you, you will have to relocate to Maui, Hawaii. It's also like, <laughs> but the worst yeah, thing to good. say in the world. Right. It's, it's different if you say you must come to Greenland, right? Or we'd like you to, to visit Antarctica. 
Uh, Maui's not so hard to recruit people to come in and work in. And it's it's also a fantastic place to do a lot of the hardware development. I mean, we we have we have to kind of innovate on the actual satellite bus and the chassis. And it's great to have a bunch of engineers working in the middle of nowhere. Uh, the only distraction is whether or not they'll make it to the beach tonight. And I think that's a I think that's a good a good uh, pace. You know, you can work hard and play hard. Uh, so, certainly, I imagine that's sur surfing to work, back to, back to surfing, or yeah, partying. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I, so, I, don't know, I, haven't, I haven't seen the water out there in some time. I know that we live on an island, but I've been in this office for too long. <laughs> and so the other thing I want to ask you: so when people go to your to your website www.privateer.com, they will notice a Swiss watch on there. Um, and I mean, you can just, we can just mention the name. It's, it's, it's Omega, you know, I mean, these guys are sponsoring you. So it's only, and, and I'm wearing an Omega. I mean, this is not video, but I'm, I'm actually wearing an, yeah. <laughs> I'm wearing an Omega, uh, moon swatch as we speak. So how, how did this come about? <laughs> how did you partner with a Swiss watch company? Well, that seems like a very logical step because there's only, there's only a couple of really historically prolific brands in space and Omega has been there since the start. Um, mm. Omega, they have a, a deep DNA and a tradition. I mean, as a lot of really amazing Swiss watchmakers do for mechanical precision, but Omega takes it to the next, next level. I mean, don't get me wrong. I own other watches. Uh, and you know, I would say there's some watches that are more jewelry than wristwatch, mm -hmm. but Omega is definitely a precision timekeeping device. And it was on the wrists of Neil and Buzz while they bunny hopped around the moon. Yeah. It saved the life of the Apollo 13 astronauts and, and Omega actually won the most prestigious award you can win at NASA is the Silver Snoopy Award, which is really for, you know, keeping people safe while they're, they're on orbit or on mission. And, you know, these types of things and this deep space heritage and pedigree made Omega just a very logical fit. And uh, I was blown away that they actually reached out to us and said, hey, we love the mission of making space safe and accessible for humankind. And we really like what you're doing. We should partner up to try to get the word out and try to, you know, kind of amplify the message so people understand what's really going on in space and also look mm -hmm. at that from uh, the precision that's missing, right? We can't, there's all these things we don't know in space. Mm -hmm. They love the idea that we're actually kind of mapping the universe the way that they're working with other companies that are mapping the deep underwater ocean, things like Necton and stuff like that. So it's really a, a good fit and they're wonderful people and they've been amazing, you know, amazing to work with. I mean, you know, they haven't, we haven't met Daniel Craig or George Clooney yet. I don't know when that's going to happen, <laughs> but um, they've really been wonderful to work with and, and we're, we're excited to work with them. We're also now working with Nat Geo, which I, I don't get to go too far down that rabbit hole, but we're excited about that mm -hmm. one as well, doing similar work, which is really fantastic. Really, really, really cool. And um, the other question I, I wanted to ask you is, um, is sort of what we always ask at the end. If you weren't doing privateer, but you know, you, you're obviously interested in space in general, and as you said, you've, 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 you've been in and out of the uh, space sector it's like it's like hotel california or something you check out but you never leave what 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 else may you be doing in space what 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 are things happening in space do you find really interesting also from a business perspective well you know the thing about building privateer in in, in a way is a platform business right we're enabling a lot sure. of industries to do interesting things so if i wasn't working on privateer i would be working on something that looks exactly like privateer that has a different name <laughs> it's a total cop-out but 
I, I really believe it enough that, you know, there's very few people on planet Earth that are kind of like Elon. They can be parallel entrepreneurs. Yeah. Right? They can run four companies at once or five companies at once. I just don't have that skill. I can't multitask. So for me, uh, I would barely consider myself a serial entrepreneur. Uh, this, is, this is the thing that I'm focused on. And after uh, years of having a very distracted personality, it's wonderful to be able to focus. It just means that I can't focus on anything else. So... This is, uh, this is the dream until it's not the dream. And I imagine this one is going to be a dream that will haunt me for a long time. If, you know, people, people don't always get that. But startup companies, if it's not about the mission of what you're doing, you'll never get it done. Mm. And, you know, when we started my last company, Ripcord, we used vision-guided robots to try to take the world paperless. And we sat around a lot when we started the company and said, why would we do that? Why does it matter to each of us personally? Why does it really mm. matter? And we came to the conclusion that most of the knowledge of human history was still trapped on paper, dating back to the incunables. And what would it be like if the next generation woke up with more than the last 25 years in Google? What if they had the total knowledge of human history at their fingertips and they could make sense of it? And they could start from a level now that is the complete knowledge of, of human history and at that new inflection point. And we started working on the technology to do it. And we've gotten pretty far. I mean, Ripcord's doing amazingly well. Mm -hmm. um, using these these advanced industrial work cells to, to get the data in. Working on privateer, we sat around the table and asked ourselves the same question. Why is this so important to us? Where is the future of humanity going? We, we probably, to some degree, came from the stars and we're now going back. Mm -hmm. And to become a space-faring people, we have to create an environment that makes that safe and accessible. We have mm -hmm. to create the tools and technology to make it possible to scale. And then we have to open up that door so that we can go in that direction as human civilization. That's insanely meaningful. You can't just walk away from that and forget about it. And uh, I suspect that's, that's what will keep this team marching forward for a long, long time. But we know that in our lifetime, we'll be lucky to accomplish a fraction of what our mission is. Uh, you know, we're not going to wake up one day and go, oh, it's done. We, it's over. We figured yeah. it out. <laughs> we can all go home now. I don't, I don't think that day is ever going to come, which is great. Yeah, no, it's, it's 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 true. I mean, if you really get the platform done, which obviously as an investor, I'm very much cheering for you. It's almost like you're operationalizing space. You're making it like like everybody will be able to help build the the what what we're doing in space. Plus plus the side effects like where you're starting like the space sustainability and the um and the space situational awareness, which um yeah, it's it's, it's where we started. It's just mind boggling, right? I, I just thought about. I'm still so mesmerized by the fact that the the rocket stage hit the moon. We didn't know where it came from. <laughs> sometimes sometimes I think the other way around i was like and like you said the rocket stage came from earth but it also sort of implies well if there was some sort of like small ufo like aliens flying by that basically implies you would have no idea right <laughs> but it's a yeah, very it's, high chance well it's the weirdest thing ever to think that like an advanced alien civilization with a four billion year head start has not been able to create a technology that doesn't crash i i opened up a, a space conference about three months ago and the question that i asked everybody in the audience was how many people believe that an alien spacecraft crash landed in Roswell, New Mexico. A show of hands. It was pretty surprising how many hands went up. So I asked them to keep their hands up. I said, okay, for all of you that have your hands up, how many people believe that in our lifetimes, Tesla will create a technology that makes it impossible for you to crash your car? <laughs> That's a shocking, you know, it's unbelievable that people would think this way, but they traversed the entire galaxy to get here, and they just couldn't keep themselves from crashing when they got here. Yeah, but like, the guy, the guy was like on drugs or something. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a drunk, like teenage alien who was exactly. on a joyride, 
and they they had stolen the spacecraft, and it, it already had a dodgy control system in it. Yeah, uh, you know, they got it. It, 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 it was it wasn't the Tesla equivalent, right? It was like yeah, you know, no, this was this was like a Ford Pinto uh, equivalent spacecraft. But I just I just think it's really humorous. But I, I mean, to your to your point and to the point of why we're doing what we're doing, if you can't not crash in space, you can't do any of the fun stuff. You have to start with right. like not crashing into each other, yep. not getting hit by random pieces of debris. Then you get to figure out how to do all the other cool stuff. Yeah. And that stuff's but, but totally good. But, but since we now have reached the stage of talking about basically uh, teenage aliens on drugs, yeah. <laughs> we're, nat we're naturally seg segueing to my, uh, always, always is my last question, which is about science fiction and whether you like science fiction and favorite science fiction works. I mean, this is a, this is a cross. Our our mission is somewhere at the crossroads of Red Dwarf and Doctor Who, right. um, because you know we run the we run the risk that the dialects are going to get us. But we're also on that space cleanup barge and mining vessel, traversing the galaxy, praying that our cat doesn't mutate into a human. Um, all all these things have now come, and uh, we'll we'll get to see the rest of it very soon. Terrific, Alex. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, my Best pleasure. Best of luck in. Best of luck in building Privateer. And of course, we're huge fans and we're cheering for you. No, thanks so much for the support. And thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Sure. I'll see you soon. And that's a wrap for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. Once more, if you enjoyed this, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platforms such as Apple or Spotify. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. You can support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an interesting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. See you for the next episode.